Hello, everybody. Hope you guys are doing all right. We're jumping into lesson 11 here. Coming coming on the, the end of our, our class as a whole. But uh, my goodness, we got quite a bit of stuff to talk about still. So we're in the study on the conquest in the book of Joshua. And we've read through Joshua. Last couple lessons were about the first view, the instrumental view. God was using Israel as an instrument of justice on a people group that were morally depraved. So we're, we're going to take um, a second view. We're going to dive into it. And there's a connection because this view is also going to say there actually was a destruction of a people group going on and it was intentional, but it, it had to do with these individuals that are called the Rephaim. And if you remember, I walked you through a, a number of connections. It was quite a rabbit hole that we went down and there was some connection to giants and to Goliath. So that was a couple lessons ago that we connected the dots on all of that. And I want to cash that in here because this particular view by this Old Testament scholar, Michael Heiser, is an interesting one. And I, I confess that in some ways it's it's somewhat convincing. So I, I'm not 100% sold on it. So I'll be presenting some other views that I think might have more going for him. But uh, he, he definitely messes with some of my categories, with some of his approaches. So, and it's never bad for our ideas and, and interpretations to be messed with, right? Uh, we just don't all know everything. So I welcome this. And I, this is going to sound like science fiction, guys. You, so here's, here's what I want to do. I'm actually just going to read one of Heiser's articles. And I will post this with the lesson in Google Classroom for you guys to be able to read through if you're if you're curious as well. And as we did with the first view, we'll do the same here. I'll I'll go through the article, I'll hit the high points in it, and then what I'd like is I'll create a Google Doc and have you guys add questions and comments. And I'm laughing because you're gonna have a lot of them because this view is just going to sound crazy. So, but uh, without further ado, let's dive in. And again, I'm just going to read his article. And along the way, I'll pause and maybe add a little commentary of my own or connect the dots with, with our study. So this is posted on his website, drmsh.com. That stands for Dr. Michael S. Heiser. And the title of his article is The Giant Clans and the Conquest. Here we go. Those who have read The Unseen Realm, that's a book that he has written, and it's a fascinating book. I've, I've read it. Those who have read The Unseen Realm know I have an atypical perspective on the conquest. Specifically, the contention by many that the Israelite contest, 
conquest was an indiscriminate genocide of the inhabitants of Canaan. My view is that it wasn't indiscriminate at all, and that wholesale genocide wasn't the point of the conquest. Rather, the command of devoting to destruction, cherem, remember, was focused on the giant clans, denoted by the words like Anakim, Rephaim, and occasionally Amorites. That is, I believe the rationale for the cherem was to eliminate the Anakim, the vestiges of the Nephilim, who are mentioned in Numbers 13, 32 through 33. Since those peoples were perceived to be, and were in some way, according to the Old Testament, raised up by rival gods hostile to Yahweh. And thus, their own purpose was to prevent Yahweh's people from kickstarting the kingdom of God on earth. Other people were certainly killed since the giant clans were scattered among the general population. But I contend the conquest rationale was framed by the urgency to eliminate the Nephilim bloodlines. This is textbook mythic history, which is defined as actual historical events framed by and articulated in light of theological rationale or beliefs. All right, so I'm gonna pause the article for a second and remind you of the Nephilim. We, that's, that's from Genesis six. So you have the sons of God took daughters of man and had children as the Nephilim they're called in Genesis six. And so Heiser is gonna take that as the sons of God were actually angelic or spiritual beings that are manifesting themselves in physical ways, um, which to be fair, happens in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, angels show up and people in Genesis make meals for them. So um, God shows up in some way with uh, Jacob and they wrestle, right? And um, and so it, we got to acknowledge that this, in some ways, there's a relevance here. But um, these Nephilim are presented in in scripture as giants and he Heiser references numbers 13 so and there's really no getting around the fact that they're called that um so that's fairly clear that the anakim of numbers 13 are talked about as descendants of the nephilim so but what the bible is intending by giants course that's up up for debate so i'm gonna i'm gonna get back to the article so heiser says i base this position on a few points one there are a range of verbs for what the conquest was supposed to do and what it did do several which don't speak of killing or annihilation for example the hebrew word garash which is to drive out or to dispossess is mentioned in numerous texts in Exodus. For example, Exodus 23, 28, and quite a few in Numbers. And we read that same language in Joshua. 
Number two, the conquest account actually begins in Moses's day in the Transjordan, which is specifically aimed at Sihon and Og, Deuteronomy 2 and 3. The latter is clearly a giant, and both are referred to as Rephaim, a term which is linked to the Anakim in Deuteronomy 2.11. Kings of the Rephaim or Amorites. In Amos's recollection of the conquest, the Amorites are described as very tall, Amos 2 verse 9. Consequently, the conquest begins with giant clans in view. All right, so Heiser's arguing that the conquest did not start when they entered into the land of Canaan. It actually started before when they were in the Transjordan area when they attacked Sihon Nag, because Og specifically, the writer of Deuteronomy, goes out of his way to talk about Og being a really big dude who has a huge bed. Number three, Heiser says, the conquest instructions projecting the days of Joshua begin with what appears to be a general command of Cherem to the entire land, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 2. However, Heiser says, I argue that the use of the verb is designed to take the reader's mind back to the battles with Sihon and Og. This makes sense because as one proceeds through the conquest, the subsequent uses of Cherem coincide at places where Anakim giants were seen and known to be present. The particular usage frames the general instance. So I'd like to elaborate on this perspective in this post. So here he goes. He asks the question, where are the giant clans in the land? So a little geography lesson here, guys. Heiser says, let's start with the original scouting mission of the land under Moses. 10 of the 12 spies reported the land could not be taken because of the Anakim, a faithless report that led to the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So it says here, uh, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. So from these verses, Heiser says, let's note a couple things. This report tells us that the inhabitants of the hill country, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites, um, as opposed to the inhabitants who live by the sea and in the Jordan River Valley, the Canaanites and the Negev. So who is, or what is the hill country? Sorry. So he's going to quote from uh, Harper's Bible Dictionary here. A general designation in the Bible for those parts of the Holy Land that are hilly rather than flat. Since the land of Palestine has a mountainous, mountainous spine running through its length between the Jordan River to the east and the Mediterranean Sea to the west, any area along that spine can be designated hill country. And then again, he quotes from a book called Geography in the Bible. The hill country occupies most of the country between the coastal plain to the west and the Jordan to the east. So... In, in other words, the central hill country extends from Galilee in the north to the Negev way in the south. And it has three parts. There's the hills of Galilee, 
the hills of Samaria, and the hills of Judah. It's actually a lot of land. Number two, despite the geographical zones mentioned above, the Anakim are simply said to live there in the land. This means that the Anakim were presumably scattered among these people, the other people groups in the land. Number three, if we look at the places where the terms Anakim and sons of Anak occur, we get several more specific geographical references within Canaan. Uh, Hebron, Debir, and Anab, situated in the hill country, along with the regional general descriptions, all the hill country of Judah and all the hill country of Israel. The Anakim are not said to be found in other areas, just throughout the hill country as it stretches north to south in the land. Four, the cities of Jericho, Jerusalem, Lachish, and Ai are in the hill country, as was Hazor in the upper Galilee, also the part of the hill country. Not surprisingly, town cities that the king of Hazor sent aid to versus the Israelites are also in the hill country. Though the precise locations of some of these sites are unknown, the biblical narratives associate them all with the hill country. It's not hard to see that the giant clan remnants were associated with the hill country. Since this is where the Anakim are said to live, Heiser says, I don't see the overlap as coincidental, particularly in light of the Cherem commands and the way the conquest is summarized. I also think it's significant that this thread is picked up once Israel gains control of the land again under the monarchy. The accounts of David's skirmishes with the Philistines, the remnant Anakim fled to the Philistine cities, according to Joshua 11, and in particular Goliath and his brothers are not just window dressing. They telegraph that the giant clan bloodlines are still around and still need elimination. All right, so that's, you know, take it, take it for what you think, people, but I, there's something can, interesting there about the way Heiser's talking about the geography that I think warrants some thought. All right, next, he's going to get into that, he, that Hebrew word, cherem. Okay, here are all the instances of cherem in the conquest accounts, Numbers through Joshua. Here's a rundown of where the annihilation command is given. And so he uh, gives you passages from Numbers and, and Deuteronomy, and then Joshua 2, Joshua 6 through 8, and Joshua 10. And we've actually looked at all these, so I'm going to skip this. So here I'm going to summarize what he says about Joshua here. I would submit that the above is why Joshua sums up the conquest in this way. So Joshua 11. And Joshua came at that time to cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments and the land had rest from war. Heiser says, notice that the summary doesn't say, and there were no more, fill in the people name, in the land of the people of Israel, because Joshua had cut off, fill in the people name. The conquest is defined as success along specific lines, elimination of the Anakim from the hill country, so that none of them were in Israel's land. I think it's why the mop-up that occurred afterward in the days of Joshua also focused on the elimination of the Anakim by Caleb 
again in the hill country, Joshua 14 through 15. Uh, a few more comments from Heiser. There are other Hebrew verbs of destruction besides cherem, though that word has a very specific theological ritual connotation. He says, let's look at some other words that can involve killing that are used in the book of Joshua. So one is abad, abad. It occurs three times. Each instance, the Israelites um, are in view and not other people. Then there's shamad. This word is used in Deuteronomy 9 to describe the conquest generally. There's shahat, shahat. Um, it's used in, in Joshua 23. Here's his point in a nutshell. What I'm saying is that when the conquest account gives us specifics, it is the giant Anakim targeted for utter destruction. The motivation is inextricably linked to the idea that rival gods seek to prevent Yahweh's people from reestablishing the kingdom of God on earth. And when he says, guys, I'm going to pause there. When he says rival gods, he means rival spiritual beings. He's using the word gods uh, in, in that way because the Hebrew word Elohim means spiritual beings. And we translate it God or gods um, in, in our Bibles. Back to Heiser. Yes, it is certain other people were killed in the combat, but the Anakim were the rationale for required killing. Other peoples could have simply been driven out and displaced without being killed, but not the Anakim. Heiser says one more thing. Why haven't you heard this before? I think the answer to that is simple enough, because it requires taking these accounts and Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and Numbers 13, 32 through 33, seriously and supernaturally. In other words, something that involved divine beings. Instead, evangelical Bible students, pastors, and most scholars strip the passages of their supernatural elements to make them palatable to a modern audience. Whew. An ancient reader simply would not have read any of these passages without those elements. And he says in parentheses, and Genesis 6, 1 through 4 certainly wasn't written to respond to non-supernatural religious claims of Mesopotamians. You can, of course, opt for a modern neutered reading, a common strategy from Augustine onward. But if you do that, don't talk about interpreting the Bible in context. You won't be. Oh, boy. So... <laughs> There you go, people. Heiser's argument is that the conquest was God wanting to get rid of the offspring of the Nephilim, who were called giants. And so he takes, it's really interesting, he takes these passages very literally when it speaks of giants. He's saying that they were really giants. So there's overlap with the first view in that both are seeing a, a moral issue with those who are being attacked. The instrumental view is going to say that the people of the land of Canaan as a whole were morally corrupt. Heiser is going to say uh, that the, the issue here would be the, the giants 
who are the offspring of spiritual beings and human women. And this is a perversion of God's created order. And if God's going to establish a people group and bring restoration and, and order to the world through Israel, these Anakim, these giants, stand in opposition. This is an unholy marriage of the spiritual and the, and the human worlds coming together. And Heiser's going to argue, he doesn't in this, but he's going to say, God all along wanted heaven and earth to come together his way. And in and through the temple is how that works. But what you have here is you have um, spiritual beings rebelling against God and seeking to bring heaven and earth together their own way. So I find that narrative very interesting. And there's a lot there to dive into if you so choose. So I'm going to create the Google Doc and we'll see. We'll see what you guys think about this. I look forward to reading your comments. See y'all.